0: So let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, we'll turn once again to verses 28 through 30, just to go ahead and give you a heads up, we will not finish 28 through 30, I know that's a shocker to you. However, if, if you were with us last week, or if you're familiar with Romans 8, 28-30, you know uh, these verses are not without their challenges. Not because uh, there's some kind of tricky controversy uh, over the text itself, really in all honesty, I think the challenge is in what is a straightforward teaching that perhaps is hard for us to fully embrace. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Well, it's not rocket science. It's not like it's as hard as brain surgery. Have you all ever used these phrases? Or maybe a phrase kind of like it. It's kind of a a way in which we, I think it's probably unique to maybe the sarcastic, hyperbolic tendencies of Americans, that we would use that kind of phrasing as a way to say what we're talking about is not that difficult. It's kind of an odd way to do it. Again, it's a bit of a sassy way to do it, right? So we're talking about a subject, and we might say something, well, well, it's not rocket science, meaning it's not that hard to understand, or it's not brain surgery. These tend to be the two. There may be others, right, that we would put in this kind of context, a way to say that what we're talking about is not complicated. Now, what do we mean then by default? well, we're then making the assumption that brain surgery and rocket science are complicated. So church, I say we add a third phrase to this. Because I think there's another topic we could state. We could say, well, it's not God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because this, this is a tricky topic, right? A lot of folks... Stumble on this. A lot of folks wrestle with this. My guess is all of us at one time or another, and maybe even still are, when we start talking about the sovereignty of God over all things, and make no doubt about it, Romans 8.28 is saying that. We started it last Sunday. It, you, 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 re- you really can't wiggle your way around it. When Paul opens up this concluding statement really about what has been a larger topic of suffering, how do we manage suffering, how do we deal with these ugly, awful things happening in our lives, and Paul giving us great instruction, great principles, great ideals related to the nature of suffering now and the nature of the glory to come, the work of the Holy Spirit, we saw in verses 26 and 27 that, that it is the Spirit who intercedes for us, He helps us when we don't even know what to pray, and that we can be confident that He is praying in a way that is perfect according to the will of God. And that phrase then, I think, launches Paul into this summation where he expands. He goes beyond just the issue of suffering and instead says, in fact, not only can we trust that the Spirit is engaged in this kind of 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 profound ministry on our behalf, but we can have a theological certainty that all things, good, bad, and ugly, it's it's all things, every facet of my life, every event that transpires, all things are being orchestrated, governed, used by God to bring about His perfect will in my life. It's an absolute certainty. This is what God is doing. He is working all things. And we talk about that kind of sovereignty, and so understand, church, I absolutely believe in a meticulous sovereignty of God. I may end up being a little frustrating over the next two weeks. Not the first time, all right? Won't be the last, undoubtedly. But I will tell you, I will lay much greater emphasis on the sovereignty of God than I will the responsibility of man. I I will. That that, that is where I will lean, because I think that's where the text of Scripture... Not to lean, I mean it tips aggressively that direction. But this is our challenge, right? All right. On the one hand... We do see the sovereignty of God. We do see God as at work. And you want to agree with Romans 8.28, right? I mean, we all want to agree with it. Say all things work together for good. And yet at the same time, we recognize we make choices. Good, bad, and ugly. We know we're held responsible for our choices. So what does that mean? How do these things work together? What is the nature of understanding these things? So, so let's go ahead and set, set a, a, a foundation here. We are wading into deep and profound waters. In fact, I'm probably going to be talking about things that a lot of guys would say, I can't believe you're doing that on a Sunday morning. But you're the smartest church in town, I have no doubt, all right? It's not being ugly to the other ones, all right? But I know you people. Say, do you know them? No, but I don't need to, all right? Yeah. Pastor, are you buttering us up? Yeah, yeah, I am, all right? Yeah, I am. Uh, are you going to take it? Yeah, yeah, I think you probably will, all right? So we're, we're wading, though, into what are deep waters, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you're not going to come out of this thing with all of your I's dotted and all of your T's crossed. That there's going to be a gap, because there's a significant gap between God's infinity and our finite minds, right? So there's going to be some bridging here that just does not happen. Does the Bible speak to God's sovereignty? Yes. Does it speak to human responsibility? Yes. And so at the end of the day, we will embrace those because the text says it. However, we're not just going to leave it at that. All right, we're going to walk our way then through what Paul is doing here. And again, we. We, we, we jumped off with this last week, noting that as Paul brings this whole thing to a conclusion, he offers us what is the sixth principle for dealing with suffering, and that is what I just mentioned. We can trust that God is orchestrating events in our lives to ensure that His perfect will is completed in us. He's orchestrating these events. And Paul does this by giving us, really, first in verse 28, kind of the, the, the what God is doing. And then he lays out the how. So if we just go on to the next verse, uh, the next, next slide there. So the, the, the fundamental principle then is this We're certain that God, in His sovereignty, is orchestrating all aspects of our lives to make us like Christ. And if you remember, we were taking this just kind of phrase by phrase. We looked at the phrase, and we know all things work together for good, we kind of got to that next phrase, to those who love God, to those who love God. And we don't want to be confused by this. When it says all things work together to those who love God, this does not mean that God is working all things together for you, provided you step up to the plate and do things that are worthy of God, making all these things happen for you. It's not what he means by this. The phrase, to those who love God, is a reference to those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior. It is, it is, a, it is a, a tag, so to speak. It is a label. It's a way of identifying those who have trusted in Christ. And just to make that clear, he then adds this next phrase at the end of 28. To those who are the called according to His purpose. To those who are the called, according to His purpose. So this phrase is important, it's really helpful. Because this obviously then identifies those who love God, not as those, you're getting all the good stuff from God because you first love God. The reason we love God is because God first loved us. He poured out His love in our hearts. He's the one who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how He demonstrated His love. So those who love God are those who are. And notice the specific phrase. The called according to His purpose. Let's deal with the phrase then, the called. Those who are the called. This is a reference not to a general invitation or calling. To reference the called is to reference those who God has called to in salvation and effectively saved them as a result. Amen. Those are the call. Not, again, not, not, not this general, you know, if I were to end this service with a call to salvation, I could, I could make a, a general call and, and extend the gospel, and, you know, whoever would come would come. That would be for me as a human. God does not call that way. The call of God is what is called the effectual call. In other words, that means it's an effective call. Almost every time the Bible uses this phrase, and I think every time in reference then to an individual, it is a reference to those who actually are saved. Those who are called are the saved, and all who are called will be saved. Now, before you think, oh, preacher, that sounds tricky. Some pretty tricky wording there. You you mean, you mean that only those who are called will be saved, and all who are called then will be saved? Yes. Now, I, can, I would jump over just to that next verse in verse uh, 30. Notice how Paul then uses the word again. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Now, why bring that up? Because it's clear. Paul is equating here those who are called with those who have been justified. We don't believe everybody in the world will be justified. We don't believe everybody in the world will be made right with God. So he's equating these things. The called are those who have been transformed by the gospel. It is God's effectual, what's called His effectual calling. Again, this is important because this places salvation squarely in the sovereignty of God. God saves all who are called, and only the called are those who will be saved. Well, I know that's a tough phrase. I know that's hard to understand, because, because then we want to get into a lot of stuff about, well, what about human freedom? What about my responsibility? What about my choices? Now, I promise you, I'm not punting here. Get it? Game on. All right, okay, so I'm not... I'm not punting here. I, didn't have, I did have a boo. All right, good. Romans 9, we'll talk a lot about human responsibility, and I will as well, all right? We'll reference it some this morning and next week. For now, you should understand, here's what this text does. This text is a pulling back of the curtain from the divine perspective. This is showing us what God is doing in salvation from a perspective you and I cannot fully embrace or understand. It's something we cannot in its totality, really wrap our minds around. It is far too magnificent and mysterious and glorious to fully understand how all these parts fit. Understand, church, though, my responsibility is only to preach the text. That's my responsibility. That's what I'll do to the best of my ability. And I think in this case it is clear, those who are called are those who will be justified. All who are called are justified. Those who are justified are the called. In other words, so this is a reference then. Those who can be certain of Romans 8 28 can be certain of it because God has intervened in their lives to save them. This he we are the called. Then notice this next phrase according to his purpose. So the called, according to whose purpose? My purpose? Your purpose? Your mom and dad's purpose? Your pastor's purpose? No, it's called according to God's divine purpose. Let me give you what I think is the best illustration of the idea of calling. I don't have to make it up. I know that makes you think, do you make stuff up sometimes? All right, well, I don't know. But this I don't have to make up. It's found in the Bible. Can anybody think of a well-known guy in the Bible whose name was called, and when called, something miraculous happened to him? Remember a guy named Lazarus? John chapter 11? It's actually the story on day two for Vacation Bible School, alright? John chapter 11, we hear from two sisters, Mary and Martha. They, they, they are followers of Christ. Lazarus is a follower of Christ. He is very ill. They call to Jesus. Jesus, we need you to come because our brother is dying. They had absolute confidence Jesus could heal, could heal him. What does Jesus do? He waits for days. He intentionally waits for days. In fact, he waits till he dies. He gets word then of this death. In fact, early on he'd said, This sickness will not lead unto death. Lo and behold, what happens? He dies, all right? He dies. So clearly, Jesus means something else other than what you and I may think of when we just think of. Death. And so we, we know the scene. He gets to this house uh, where everybody is grieving over the death of Lazarus. He's now been in the in the tomb for days. Jesus goes out to the tomb. He says, roll the stone away. And what do they say? Jesus, he's gonna stink? He's been dead for days. And what does Jesus do? Lazarus? Come forth. And lo and behold, what happens? A dude wrapped up in grave clothes comes hopping out. Now, two things here. One, why did Jesus say Lazarus? Because if Jesus had stood there, which by the way, there were other tombs around him, had Jesus just said, come forth, everybody would have come out. Wouldn't that have been something, right? If he had just said, come forth. Everybody, everybody would have come out. He had to be specific, all right? Because if not, wow, then we've really got an issue, okay? We really have something that needs some explaining. But that was not his purpose. Now, let me ask you, was it unjust for Jesus to only call Lazarus? Well, no. Of course not. Why is there any expectation he should raise everybody from the dead? So we're already dealing here with one of the issues that we often have. Is it fair for God to call some and not others? Well, quite frankly, that's not for us to decide. That's in God's sovereign grace and or justice. God's never unjust, though. He's never unjust. Just just like Lazarus was called, he had to be called by name. Let me ask you another question. This really gets to the heart of it. Could Lazarus have laid in that tomb and said, nope, I'm going to stay dead? Not interested in life, I'm going to stay right here and still be dead. Did Lazarus have any choice but to come to life? No. Let me see, as a dead man, did Lazarus first say, God, I'd really like to have life? As a dead man, did Lazarus pray first for life? No, he didn't. This was the effectual call of God in Christ. Lazarus, come forth. It's really a profound example. I think it's an important one. I think it illustrates then what we're talking about here with calling. Calling is God extending the call to the dead. Those who as as Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We can do nothing to grant our own selves life. God, in His goodness and His grace, called us. He called us. He brought us to life. He, by His Spirit, brought life to the dead, which in turn enabled us to believe and to have faith and to repent of our sin. But listen, Lazarus can't come out of the grave until he is first declared alive. This is what the gospel does. This is what he means by the called. The called according to what though? The called according to his purpose. Now now go on and read just a little bit more because we want to know exactly what that means. And here's what he says. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Hold on to those words for now, all right? Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The reason we skip them for now is because the next phrase, the next phrase answers the purpose. What is the purpose for which the called are called? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, this helps us understand, then, the good, the way in which all things work together for good. How do they work together for good? Is it because all things that happen to us are good things? Well, no. Do really, really bad things happen? Absolutely. Do bad things that you don't like happen? (laughs) Yeah. When he says all things work together for good, he doesn't mean that all things that happen are good. But he does mean that God in His sovereignty is able to superimpose over all things in such a way to guarantee that you, as the one who has been called, like Lazarus called out of the grave, that you have been called, that no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, no matter the suffering, no matter the joy, no matter the in-between, God ensures, guarantees, promises. There is no way this cannot happen that at the end of the day you will be conformed, pressed, Fashioned into the very image of Jesus Christ. This is the good to which he's working. This is the good. Do bad things help make me like Christ? Sure they do. Perhaps in some of the most profound ways. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying we always like it. But it is what God does in our trial. Is God using good things to make us like Christ? Well, sure. Sure He is. All of these things are being used to conform us to the image of His Son. And this is important, because this takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And now you're worried, because you're thinking, man, we just got on verse 29, now He's going all the way back to Genesis, all right? Wow, how long is this thing going to take? But what happened in Genesis? You remember Adam and Eve were made in what? God's image then Adam and Eve sinned. Though we often don't pay attention to this, do you know what Genesis 5 then says? Genesis 5 then says, every other single person born thereafter was born after the image of Adam. In his likeness, they were created. In the image of Adam. Adam. That means ever since then, we've all been. It's not that we don't retain some of the likeness of God. We have been created in the image of God. God is responsible for our creation, it is, it is Him and His divine work. But that is badly, badly broken because of sin. The image of God in us has been profoundly broken because of sin. That image needs to be restored. And we know from the New Testament it's more than just the image of God. Now we're given specific information that the image that is restored in us is that of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean we are restored, we're going to be divine like Him. All right, We're not going to become God like Him. However, it does mean in our moral attributes, the nature of our life, our, our existence, we will be without spot and without blemish. The work of the gospel is then to reverse... What happened in the Garden of Eden? To bring us then into Christ's likeness Right now in this life, we're in the process. Paul ends this great text by saying that, that we have been glorified. Those who have been called have been justified. Those who have justified have been glorified. He speaks of it in the past tense as if it's already happened. It's so certain. It's as if it's, as if it's already happened, though it hasn't. This is the absolute certainty. The purpose of God then is to make us like Christ. A couple of verses that say this, by the way. We have Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. So so again, Paul reiterates this in Philippians. We are being conformed. Our bodies are being conformed, pressed in to the likeness of Christ. Go on to the next one. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. Or we shall see Him as He is. So again, this is the purpose of God. This is what He's doing. This is what all things are working together, conspiring together to do for you, to ensure that at the end, you are perfect, like Jesus Christ. So it's a glorious and divine work of God. But we've not yet gotten to the entirety of that phrase in verse 29. predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, who's He, it's a reference to Jesus, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, that reference there to firstborn doesn't mean literally created by God. The word firstborn often is a phrase used to describe preeminence. First, like in, in order. Not not in creation, but in order of importance. He is premier. He is preeminent. Now, that's an odd phrase, right? I mean, unless, unless we really appreciate what he's saying here. To say that, that God is doing this work where he, he foreknew, and those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We get that. For, it is so that we would then know the fullness of Christ in us to be as he is. But notice then, what is the ultimate purpose for all of it? The purpose, listen, the purpose for salvation, it is not first and foremost about the sinner. It is not first and foremost about the saved. The purpose of salvation is first and foremost about the Savior Himself. God saved you. Did He save you to forgive your sin? Sure. Did He forgive you? Did He save you so that you could go to heaven? Sure. Did, did, did He do all this so that, so that you could have a, mountain, mount, uh, a mansion just over the hilltop? Yes, yes, He did all that. But that's not His fundamental reason for doing this. Listen, church, make no mistake about it. The reason why God, in Christ according to His divine glorious purpose, has called you like Lazarus from the grave, is not so that you might be exalted, not so that the one who proclaimed the gospel might be exalted, but so that the one who is responsible for the gospel might be exalted. Listen, all of it is for Jesus Christ. All of it's for His superiority. All of it's for His supremacy. He's done this that the firstborn may be exalted. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. To bring all of our attention on Him. We've we've got got some, some verses that say that. In fact, Jesus Himself, going back to John 11, verse 4, before Lazarus has even died, before this whole story has even transpired, Jesus said this, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. That the Son of God, may be glorified through it. You notice who's not mentioned in that? Lazarus. (laughs) He didn't say this will not end in death so that Lazarus can have life. Do you notice he did not say this will not end in death so that Mary and Martha can have some comfort and have Lazarus back for a little while longer. He did not say that this, this was done so that others who are grieving can have a little reprieve. This was done so that the Son may be glorified. And the very next verse, after all this happens, after Jesus says, loose him and let him go, in verse 44, in verse 45 of chapter 11, the text then says, and many of the Jews who saw and heard these things believed. This was the purpose, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that He would receive preeminence. For God's purpose, though God's purpose is to make us like Christ, Ultimate purpose is to exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. Notice a couple other verses that say this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. That may be too small, but you can write this down and and read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. What's the purpose in all of this? To the praise and the glory of His grace. One more, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I don't think I put this up there, but you could write this down. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. This is it. Who has saved us and called us. Notice the equation there, saved and called. These are almost synonymous concepts. Saved us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I know these are hard concepts. I know your mind is swirling with one of two things. Either lunch, all right? In other words, you checked out a little while ago and you got hungry. All right, so that could be one. Or You're thinking, how does all this work? Now, we're not done. You're going to have to come back next week. Man, pastor, such a tease, right? You are going to have to come back because we will then, I mean, get all into new. And, And just to go ahead and give you a heads up. What do I think the text means by foreknew and predestined and then called and then justified and glorified? I think it means exactly what it says. I think it means exactly what it says. Understand this, church. I'll go ahead and lay my cards on the table, okay? Not saying I'm, I play poker. All right, that's probably not a good reference, okay? I heard that from the youth minister. All right, so it's not mine, okay? All right. Somebody may say, Pastor, do you believe in election and predestination? Yes. There's too many texts that say it. Yes, I do. I believe those who get saved are those determined by God who will get saved. I I I think that is what the text teaches. However, are there commands in the Bible? Are we expected to obey? Sure. Sure we are. You ready? You ready for this? How do these things then connect? Get ready. Write this down. How do these things connect? I don't know. <laughs> you ever hear a pastor say that very often? I, I don't know. I, that, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. I do know some of it. All right? And we'll get to it. Okay? We will, we will get to it next, next week. But but understand, this, this is part of the mystery in this. We have been given a glimpse into what God and His sovereignty is doing. This text is not about you. There are other texts that may be more about human responsibility. This is not one of them. This is all about God's sovereign, superseding work. To me, the, the chain here seems clear. God foreknew predestined, called, justified, glorified. He did all, this, he, he did all this according to his own purpose. The purpose is that we be conformed to the image of Christ, not so that we can have super great lives, even though we will in glory. All of this was done so that Christ would be exalted and glorified. This is what God is doing in Christ Jesus. This is the grand work that's working together for our good. And, and so, so here's how we're going to close this. Again, knowing, I know know if you've got questions, I will deal with them seriously. I promise you I will. And and we will talk then. Again, what does foreknow mean? What does predestined mean? We'll get into some of the details of it next Sunday. But here's what I think this text should really do. Rather than getting lost in some of that. First, I would encourage, I'm not telling you to turn your mind off, but at some point I am telling you, and me. We have to just say, God, I believe Your word, Even when I don't understand all of that word. Even when I can't connect all of that word. Keep in mind it's a divine mind to human mind. There's a gap there, right? It's a pretty massive gap there. So we, we trust that God says what he says. And we're grateful for it. And what this text then should do for us is at the end of the day, Rather than... Not, not that we're not going to try and talk about these things, because we will, but, but at the end of the day, I think it should lead us to a profound gratitude that God saw us who were dead and called us by name out of the grave so that we might have eternal life. Amen. This should all be to the praise of His glory and grace. That we should be able to join together with one song, and we will, and we will, we will sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. I may not always glory in how all of my theological Ps line up with my theological Qs, alright? But I will glory in what is a profound description of God's majestic work of salvation. And so as we have a time where we will sing in response to this truth, as we look forward then to next week and and looking at foreknowledge and predestination and those big, weighty, heavy terms, let's first just still hearts and minds and thank God for such so great a salvation. Salvation bestowed upon us by Him and nothing more than His grace. Maybe if you're here today, though, and you've heard this and you're wondering about salvation itself, so my appeal to you, I know some people might say, why are you even doing this? Because I'll I'll extend the call to salvation. The call's not mine to control, but it is mine to proclaim. I will extend a call. God saves, and and God saves often. I don't know what to tell you about that other than I can tell you this. I don't know who, when, how, what, of what's going on in the human heart, but I will tell you this, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've never confessed that you are a sinner, unable to save yourself, and never trusted that Christ died for you and rose from the dead, then when you leave this life, you will spend eternity separated from God. And I implore you to throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Trust Christ as Savior. Submit to the work of the Spirit in your life. Listen to the voice calling to you come forth. I don't know what God may be doing, but I do know the call on me is to make that plain. Do you need to be saved today? Let's stand together, and as we have this time, maybe you'd want to know more about that. I'll be right down front. would love an opportunity to do so. Maybe, maybe it is just simply then this call to glory and the redemption made available to us in Christ Jesus. I would invite you to do that. Maybe spending time in prayer is what you'd like to do. Maybe where you are or down here, maybe you'd like me to pray for you. I would encourage you that you take this Word, allow the Spirit to bring it to bear on your life, and it might produce His fruit in you. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You again for the gathering of Your people, for the opportunity to think about such heavy and weighty matters, for the opportunity to see such a magnificent, mysterious, and glorious plan of salvation. And so, Father, may we now join our hearts in praise to You for this great salvation. Pray that you by your spirit would do in the heart and mind of all who are in here what needs to be done. That you might be glorified. That Christ would be exalted in all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.